And uh, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. I don't know, you can't help but join in with that, right? Like even, it just falls off your lips because of how familiar it is, how, how core it is to the things that we believe and understand. In antiquity, way before full Bible translations were produced, it was the Lord's Prayer that would first be delivered in the various languages. To some, it's a rite of passage, a, a marker of, of praying maturity. I noticed this in, in the life of my kids, and I, I remember some of it from my own childhood, but... Um, the, the first step in, in, in the prayer life uh, of a child is generally they can say, dear God and amen, and anything in the middle is just cute as all get out, right? That's a cool face. Um, and then when they, when they move on, we tend to move on to, uh, what, now I lay me down to sleep. Hey, that's a creepy prayer, guys. That's creepy. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. See, we say... Don't let them watch, don't let them play the video games, they're violent. Don't, don't let them watch the movies, they're violent. By the way, every night you put into the head that they may die at night. That, um, they trace the lineage of that back to the New England uh, primer. It's a, um, it's a school book the Puritans would have used, um, and it was used in Europe. And it's longer, like that's the end. And the, the first part has to do with, like, they're actually praying to the guys that wrote the Gospels, um, and that there are four angels, on each, one on each bedpost. And uh, two of them are there to, like, carry me away if I were to die. And I thought, like, that doesn't help. So anyway, you could let that one go. Like, it's a pretty standard thing to do. I did it with my kids, but I, the more I thought about it, I thought, I, maybe I'm going to let that one slide for now. Uh, and, and then you move on, and, and I, I started going through the Lord's Prayer with my kids because I thought, it's, a, uh, it's an example, and it maybe helps us to understand the types of things that we can be praying about. And... Uh, we, we went through it and I kind of explained it. And I was studying more on this this week. I, I think I have some hesitation about that. And the reason I have some hesitation about that is because I wonder if, if perhaps we've approached this prayer with a little too much familiarity. That perhaps we are so close to the words of Jesus that we no longer hear distinctly all that rests within them. You see, the Lord's Prayer is a, is a dangerous prayer. This prayer by itself was enough to get Jesus killed. And words can do that. Words are powerful. See, words can encourage and embolden men to war and then urge and compel them to seek peace. It's through words that we profess love. We seek forgiveness, declare truth, pass on ideas, sustain hope, and impart knowledge. When we speak or write, it allows us the ability to bring part of ourselves into the world and leave it there in the hearts and minds of those that hear or read it long after we've gone. It is primarily through words that we communicate, that we can hope to understand each other and to be understood ourselves. It's no coincidence that John, a friend and follower of Jesus, describes Jesus as the Word at the opening. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus, and how awesome is that? The way that God has chosen to communicate with us, to impart knowledge, to bring hope, to demonstrate love, is through the life and person of of Jesus himself. It is through him that God expresses himself to us. And that means it doesn't just matter what Jesus said and did. It matters how he did it. And that our lives have that same opportunity to communicate, not just in word, but in deed, 
how we are transformed by Jesus. But we are a culture that throws away words. We speak flippantly often, just to impress ourselves. We have stripped words of their power as we ignore nuance and distinction and often truth. We paint with broad, false brushes, stretching words to mean things they never did before. We elect officials not on the standard of whether their word is good or not, whether they keep their promises or not, but on a sliding scale of whether they keep more promises than the next guy. We say things like, till death do us part, and read my lips, no new taxes. And no one even takes them seriously anymore. Why would they? They're just words. Our words are empty. But Jesus doesn't speak empty words. He doesn't live empty words. And this prayer that his follower Matthew records represents for the world itself to be transformed. It's a calling for radical change in how we understand our relationship with God. It seeks nothing less than a revolution. And it presumes that there is a God who hears every word and a God who will respond. You see, this prayer in our mouths and in our hearts is just as dangerous to our lives, our status quo, as it was to the life of Jesus. And perhaps because of our familiarity, our culture of shallow words, we don't catch that as clearly as we should. It's time to get reacquainted. Let's catch up with where we're at in Matthew's Gospel. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is teaching those that would follow him, trying to help them understand his kingdom, describing it to them, laying the foundation. And through his teaching so far, we learn what the kingdom values. It values those who understand who they are and that they need God. Those who make peace, give mercy, live for righteousness. The kingdom values those who bless their enemies, are brave in the face of persecution if it comes in defense of the king. We've learned that all the laws of the past, the you shall nots and regulations concerning what to eat and where, all pointed and are filled by Jesus through Jesus. We've learned that we are called to a greater, more fulfilled righteousness that will not suffer two-faced behavior. That God is not fooled into believing that just because we didn't murder anybody, that we don't have anger in our hearts. And that just because we haven't committed adultery or lusted outside of our marriage, that we aren't desiring to. In the kingdom of Jesus, he is concerned with reality, with the truth, the state of our hearts, the nature of our soul. We have the same opportunity to do what Jesus did, which is to not just communicate with our words, but to be them. It matters not only what we say we believe, but what we do and how we do it. See, the nature of that discussion so far in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't change as we roll into this section in chapter 6. It just reorients itself from revealing hypocrisy when trying to hide the things we shouldn't do to bringing it forth when trying to make sure everyone knows what we're doing. At the start of this section, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Last week we covered giving, not drawing attention to yourself to show others how generous you are. In the kingdom of Jesus, we do the work the king has sent us to do. The adulation of the crowds is irrelevant. We're seeking praise from the wrong people. It doesn't even make sense. It's like having your boss at work recognize all the work that you did on a big project. And then you going down to make sure the lady that runs the mail room was also informed of how great you are. Like you've already hit your audience. It's the king's business. Jesus continues this line of discussion on prayer, starting in chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. 
But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What's that word again? Jesus keeps saying hypocrite. The Greek word there is, is, means actor, a play actor. Okay? Someone who wears masks. And uh, a lot of times in those Greek plays, they wouldn't have enough actors. So you'd have a guy who would come in and he'd, he'd play multiple parts. And so he would be holding four masks with him. And then depending on who was to be speaking, he would, he would put up the mask so that you know who it was. That's what Jesus is getting at. Like the hypocrites who, who make believe, who act like they're someone that they're not. The thing is, there's so much freedom in living in a kingdom in which everything is out in the open. You don't act like someone you're not. You don't keep up with the spiritual Joneses. God doesn't want the show. I had I actually ran into this um, relatively recently when it comes to praying before meals in public. You see, I, our, my, my family doesn't really pray before meals very often. We just don't. Um, I pray a lot throughout the day. Just meals hasn't been the thing. My grand, grandma always did. I always, I always like it. But it's just something that we don't really do. But what I found myself doing is that if we would go out to eat, I would, I would be praying publicly while we were out. And it wasn't because I, I don't think that I cared so much whether someone else heard me or not. But what I didn't want was the thought that maybe I wasn't praying because I was in public. That maybe God was going to think that if I, if I chose not to pray in public because I don't want people to hear me. And that wasn't true. But I, I think there's an element of that here. Do I care what other people are thinking? Or am I praying to God? Okay, I think, I think there's part of that. Some of the prayers we pray for meals are kind of silly anyway. My grandpa always said this. He always said, for the nourishment and strength of our bodies. And I thought, I'm eating a ho-ho. Like, that's going to take a lot of prayer to kind of do the thing that I'm asking to do. Um, you know, pick up some broccoli or something. I, I feel like straighten that out differently. I think there's an element of that in there for me. Um, for praying in public. So I, I was concerned about what other people might think. Um, not. Potentially not praying. I got, uh, I got excited and my thumb went crazy. Um, so when we're talking about prayer here, it's the same concept as giving. Okay? Prayer is a natural outpouring of a relationship with God. But it's kingdom business. And you can pick. He gave you the options what your rewards will be. I suppose you can pick. You can get rewards from the guy that's right next to you who's got the number eight with the Diet Coke that heard you bless that shamrock shake. Or you can get rewards from your Father in heaven who sees in secret. That's not much of a choice. Before we move on, we should deal with the question of whether what Jesus says here, to pray in your room, means you shouldn't pray in public at all. That's a pretty easy no. It doesn't mean that. You see, Jesus prays publicly after this point. When he feeds the the 4,000 and the 5,000 with a few pieces of bread and fish. Also, when talking with his disciples in John chapter 17, and even on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He prays publicly. It doesn't have to do necessarily with where you're at and who you're around. I've prayed, I pray publicly with groups of people, sure. But what I'm, what I'm doing is, we're praying to God. It is irrelevant that there's a man walking by who might see how religious and pious I am. That's the distinction. Jesus continues in verse 7. And when you pray, empty phrases as the Gentiles do. But they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Hypocritical Jews got the brunt of the last one. Now the Gentiles are up. It seems that these fellows were going all Hamlet at prayer time. There was some thought uh, in Roman and, and Greek religions that if you prayed and pleaded long enough with a particular deity, that you could kind of wear them down. That they would eventually give up and get tired of dealing with you 
and give you what you want. He also could be talking about vain repetitions. Saying the same thing over and over and over again as if the the words were magic and would cause God to do something. And and what I'm not talking about here, I will be careful. I'm not talking about things that you pray for over and over and over again that are things that are on your heart. And I'll give you an example. I um, I, I shared with with some of you guys before, but like I, I get really bad anxiety when I have to talk in front of people, like right now, okay? Um, and so I, every, it happens every Sunday uh, that, I'm, that I'm preaching or something going on at work. I'll have to pray like, God, this is still here. If you could use this for your glory, please do. But if you could get rid of this, that would be sweet. And it's pretty much the same prayer every time. It's been 15 times this morning. Okay? I didn't make it through first service, uh, the early service. I did not finish my sermon. I had to leave the room because of my stomach. Okay? So like, do I think God is, doesn't want your vain repetitions there? No, because they're not vain repetitions, right? That's me. That is something that is, that is in me, on my heart, to talk to my father about. Okay? That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about the thought that you can, you can push God into doing something, that there's magic words that if you just say over and over and over again that he will be bullied into making something happen. And you, you see something like this in the story of a man named Elijah, who God used to speak uh, to his, his people, who basically challenged some folks that worshipped a God named Baal, uh, to, a, to a pretty intense barbecue contest. The first group to successfully petition their God to send fire down from heaven and incinerate a bull, well, that God's real. And the other guy isn't. Okay, so here's what the, uh, here's what the Baal fellows were up to. It says, uh, this is in 1 Kings. It says, And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answers. They limped around the altar that they had made. So this, this thought process that just spend enough time and just keep saying the same thing that God's hand will be moved. Our takeaway here is twofold. Again, God is not impressed with your prayer eloquence. Okay? There have been times when people have asked me to pray saying something like, I want you to do it. You do it better. There is no better. God is not looking to be dazzled with your tonguemanship. And that is not a word. There is a line, there's a squiggly line on my paper that says Benfus tugmanship is not a legit word. In either case, he is not dazzled by it. Okay? His grace and his love and his mercy towards you is not dependent on how well you present your circumstances or the wit of your appeal. As Jesus reminds us here, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Of course he does. Prayer has never been about telling God things he doesn't already know. It's about interacting with our creator. Not checking in with the news of the day, not wearing him down to submit to our will. So then Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father who is in heaven. Now those first two words would have perked the ears of the disciples as they listened and likely made them a little uncomfortable. See, we've always lived in a world where God has spoken as a father. But that wasn't a perspective that they necessarily would have shared. Before Jesus, God has addressed his father less than 20 times in scripture. And even then, mostly in reference to either the entire nation of Israel or some select people. But in the stories that cover the life of Jesus, God is referred to as, Jesus, as God, excuse me, God is referred to as father over 165 times. So we take for granted the perspective and honor that Jesus gives us to see our relationship with God as that of a father to his child. And if we're going to be praying to this father, petitioning for his intervention, we must know him. If we don't know him, how can we be praying to him? How can we trust him? 
How can we call upon his will, desire his kingdom? How can we put our faith in his forgiveness and protection? We need to know who we're speaking to. We can't begin to fully explore who God the Father is uh, in the time that we have today, but I want to give you a glimpse. Uh, Jesus tells the following story about a uh, about a in Luke chapter 15. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into these fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the bed on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. W. Philip Keller notes the following from that story. Notice in that story that the father's attitude towards his sons never alters, never changes. The young son subjected his father to appalling anxiety and awful anguish of heart. His dad died a thousand deaths for him while he was away, living it up. His father was no fool. He knew what the boy was doing in the distant land. Even the older brother knew that much. Not only was the father's fortune being squandered, but also his good name was being dragged through the dust. And on top of this, the old man's heart was being crushed relentlessly with sorrow. And yet, two most beautiful words in scripture, by the way. And yet. Despite all that the son did to dismay his father, the parent's attitude toward him never deviated. In spite of all the shame, suffering, scandal, and loss, the father never diminished. Instead, there went out from him forgiveness, love, compassion, and concern. At no time did he reject his child. Despite all the boy had done, he was forgiven. And the day that broken, battered boy stumbled up the road toward home, he was met with the father's open arms and open heart that had never been shut against him. That's who we're praying to. That is God, your Father. He knows everything you have done and will do. All of your doubts, fears, and burdens are laid bare at the feet of the Father, and you're just you. Who He wants you to be. On your way to being rescued, refined, and restored to everything that He created you to be. There's nothing to posture about. No mask to wear. You've been invited into relationship, communion with the one who created you, your father in heaven. That's who you're praying to. And because he is your father, you can expect to be heard. See, when we see the word heaven attached to this, we sometimes picture this far off place, separated from humanity. And if God is there, he must be distant as well. But this doesn't represent how Jesus is acting at all. You see, when he prays to his father in heaven, he prays with confidence that he will be heard. We can approach God in prayer in the same way. There should be no doubt as to whether our loving Father hears when we reach out to Him in fear or in joy. He does not merely tolerate our desire to communicate with Him. It is fitting and appropriate that we do so. 
Jesus opens and says, when you pray. It's an expectation, not because you have to, but because of who he is. How could you not want to? Before we pass beyond heaven, I want to take a second to consider something. See, in the Bible, heaven generally refers to three different places. One is, is kind of the general atmosphere around the earth from which weather comes. Uh, the second is outer space, the vast beyond of planets and galaxies and stars and other wonders. And the third is the realm of the righteous, the place of rest and joy after our physical lives for those who serve Jesus, the place where God resides. Although in this instance, it's most likely that Jesus' use of heaven is meant to refer to the place I would caution us not to miss his presence in the awe of the universe which we sit and then the blessings of the natural world that fall freely from the heavens just above our head so when we consider heaven as the place that God to focus the next few lines of the Lord's prayer he says our father who is in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven you see when we think about heaven we must remind ourselves that this is our father's native environment it is a reflection of his will and of the kingdom that Jesus is calling for. Because heaven is how it is because of God, who God is and what he does and what he desires. Here are some things the Bible tells us about heaven. We are set free from the attacks, intimidations, temptations, and lies of Satan, our archenemy. We are free from anguish, despair, frustration, regret, remorse, and pain. There is no more death. There's nothing to contaminate it. Nothing to put these promises in jeopardy. There's peace and tranquility at the foot of God's throne and life will abound what a joy to meet all the children who never made it to this world sitting in the presence of the Father awaiting our arrival and we will be in the eternal presence of our Father reunited forever those are just some of the attributes of heaven as we consider heaven we should start to understand these things that Jesus is asking for that God's will is done and that his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and this is where things start to get dangerous. You see, Jesus is teaching in the middle of Rome, a reigning kingdom who has suppressed the Jewish people through taxes and violence. We've discussed in the past the Roman propensity to revere their emperors as agents of the gods and then ultimately as gods themselves. You cannot call for another kingdom to come and to take hold of this world without it being a threat to the current kingdom and its ruler. To give you an example of how fiercely Rome protected its rulers. Uh, I'm going to read you the Paphlagonian Oath. It's an oath that you had to take to do business with Rome. Okay? Just to do trade with them. This is the oath that you had to swear to. I swear with word, deed, and thought to regard as friends any of those the Roman kingdom may regard as friends, and to consider as enemies any they may judge to be enemies for my whole life. I will spare neither my body, nor my soul, nor my life, nor my children for their interests, but in every way I will endure any danger for the things that involve them. Whatever I may notice or hear being spoken, planned, or done against them, I will report it and be an enemy to the one saying, planning, or doing any such thing. I will pursue and defend against anyone they may judge to be enemies on land and sea using weapons and arms. That's Jesus. He's on the other end of that oath. He even do business with Rome. Which at times in the Bible is referred to the whole world. Sometimes when Paul is saying the whole world, he's talking about Rome. And Jesus is guilty actively calling for a new king and a new kingdom in opposition to the one that currently reigns. And he wasn't shy about it. Both John the Baptist and Jesus declared, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That will get you killed. And this proposition remains dangerous for us today. So when you ask God that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, you are asking for both his love and his justice. 
his mercy and his judgment, his absolute sovereignty to reside in the hearts of men and upon this earth. Our situation today is no different than the environment that Jesus was speaking into. There's only one king, one ruling kingdom. If Jesus is the king, it means that you're not. His will is not your will. Otherwise, you would be God. Which means that to pursue his will, you must give up yours. These seem like easy things to say. And perhaps we've said them in this prayer. Nonchalantly. This prayer is made millions of times every year without any serious intention of having it happen. We pray and do not mean it. The truth is the great majority are unwilling to surrender to the sovereignty of their lives to God. They have no intention of abdicating the throne of their own wills and hearts. They more, no more prepared or willing to accept the rulership of Christ than were those who shouted at his crucifixion, we have no king but Caesar. People who claim to be acting on God's behalf. You see, if we sincerely, earnestly, and genuinely implore God to come into our lives, our world, to establish his kingdom, you can only expect confrontation. It is inevitable that there will be conflict between his divine sovereignty and the ego of mankind, my ego. But the cost of his kingdom is your life, your will, and your allegiances. You see, we cannot treat these words lightly. I most certainly want you to pray them and mean them, but you have to know what you're getting into. As we've been talking about, God is not fooled. He will not accept your facade, your pursuit of your own kingdom, masked as if it were his. This is what I think is in play when Jesus later says in, uh, in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There's times that this verse is scary, but this is not us. This is the hypocrite. This is that says, yes, I want your kingdom to come. No, I don't. That's what we're talking about. We're to submit entirely to the will of God, just as Jesus did. In John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, just before he's to be arrested and crucified, he is resolved in saying, not my will, but yours be done. He continues in the prayer, Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. The political trouble and requirement to give up all things continues in this. See, in Rome, it was the responsibility of the emperors to provide grain to the people since there wasn't enough in the surrounding countryside for all of them to be fed. In fact, the popularity of the emperor sometimes hinged on their capability of meeting this demand. Jesus has put this responsibility squarely in the hands of the Father asking him to provide this basic need. This request would have sounded familiar to the disciples. It's reminiscent of when God provided manna, food from heaven, for his people daily as they traveled to the land that God promised them. They relied completely on God for their provision. Most of us know very little of that kind of faith and reliance on God to take care of our basic needs. We largely take care of ourselves. And I ran into this um, within the last few weeks. Uh, Dan was talking last week about the roundups. Um, there was a guy... On, on Facebook who'd been to some of the roundups. He was, uh, he was formerly homeless. He's, he found a place to live, but he just kind of secured a job at a, a restaurant in Ankeny. And um, he needed a ride home from work because you can catch a bus to catch the late shift at a restaurant, say 4.30 or so, um, from downtown Ankeny. But, but you can't get back from Ankeny to downtown at 11.30 at night. You can call a cab, but you know if you're tight on money, 
Cabs are expensive. It's a good two and a half hour walk, and that's if you're motivated. And it was about eight degrees outside, and it was going to get worse. And so this guy, um, I, I recognized his name from the Roundup stuff, and he posted, just threw it out on Facebook, and he said, I, can somebody give me a ride? And I thought, I can do that. It was on a Monday night. I'm here late. Our radio show starts at 10 o'clock. We're usually out of here around 11.30 or so. And so I thought, I could probably do that. So I told him, I, I sent him a message, and look, this guy does not know me. I said, look, I'll, I'll pick you up at 11.30. Uh, if that's what you need, he said, cool, I'll be there. So we were at the radio show. It went a little late. We got, we got out about 11.25. Now, I, seriously, on the map, I feel like it should take five minutes to get from Johnson to Ankeny. It's like 15 minutes. I don't understand what goes on between here and Ankeny, that it takes so long to get there. Um, but I knew that it's about 15 minutes because uh, I've made that mistake many times in my life of how quickly it takes to get there. And so I left at about 11.25 and I was going to be late. I was going to be 10 minutes late. And I was feeling real bad about it as I was driving there. I thought, this guy, he's going to be sitting outside waiting in the cold. Um, and he doesn't know me. He doesn't know whether I'm actually coming or not. He couldn't recognize me. He doesn't know what my car looks like. And I, I kind of put myself in, in his perspective. And he put a lot of faith in me, a guy he does not know, to pick him up in five-degree weather by this point so that he didn't have to walk two and a half hours home. And, and let's say I didn't show up. He'd probably wait a good half an hour to see whether I came. And then start walking. So now he's three hours out in the cold if I don't show. Now to me, if I'm him, that's what's in my mind. I got there and he had no doubt at all. I was coming. He didn't worry. He didn't seek another ride. He didn't start walking. I started kind of keeping out to see if he took off. But the thing is, is that humbled me a little bit. Because it put in the right perspective for me to think, I don't know what it's like not to provide for myself. I can't get stuck anywhere. I know too many people. I have, two, I have credit cards in my wallet that'll pay the tow man. Okay? I take care of my own business. And that has to die. That has to die here. That's part of the will that God is talking about. To give us, to be dependent upon Him. Do I really believe that He will take care of me the way that He says He will? Do I have faith in that? I'd like to think that my faith is strong in this area, but to be honest, I really don't know. Say, I look at the times when I've used credit cards when I was out of money. When I've worried about how I can provide for my family when I've been anxious in the face of uncertain financial circumstances. See, in this, it is not a worldly kingdom that God is contending with. It's mine. It's my own. My desire for control to put my life into my own hands. He also calls us to relinquish the power of others, even when they are in our debt. I hope you're seeing the theme here, right? Like that when you call on God's power, you give up all of yours. If you're praying this prayer, you're praying to lose control. You are not permitted to hold a debt over another man. That is control that you cannot handle. You must forgive them. Note that our impact isn't the debt. It's the debtor. It's the person. The relationship. It is to be restored as if the debt never existed. In the same way that God sees ours. Jesus continues, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need to understand that not all temptation or testing is bad. It is the Holy Spirit who had Jesus into the desert to be tempted by Satan. Right after his baptism. In uh, Genesis 22, God tests and trust of Abraham, asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And in Deuteronomy 8, this is just before they're about to enter the promised land. God says the following, The whole commandment that I command you today shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So I think we have to read this part in light of the fact that not all tempting or testing can be considered bad. In fact, the way that I, that I understand the Deuteronomy verse, it certainly seems like God's prerogative 
to use temptation and testing to help us understand the orientation of our hearts so that we may know the difference. It's within the scope here first read that we are praying to avoid testing and temptation altogether. Okay? I think you can read it that way. But I think also in context that we are to truly rely on God to deliver us in temptation from evil or the temptations of the evil one. And we got to the end of the prayer. I know some of you were expecting the for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, it won't make most of your modern translations. They don't carry that. It started to show up um, in, in some of the translations or uh, some of the manuscripts we have in like the early second century. Okay? If you say it, keep all right on saying it. doesn't mean it's not true just because it's not in your manuscript. Okay? That's fine. It's just, it's just not, you're not going to find it in, in most of your modern manuscripts of the Bible. So we're out of time today, but I think there's still a couple things that we need to deal with and we're going to have to do it next week. The first one is, is that at the end of this section of the Lord's Prayer, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. I think we're going to have to deal with that. I'm not sure that we always embrace that circumstance in that way. It seems, there, there seems to be a bit of a prid pro quo based upon the forgiveness of God. We need to make sure we understand that correctly. So we're going to hit that next week. Also, we've asked the question, what is Jesus praying for? Now I think we need to answer the question, how is his prayer answered? And we'll do that next week. So as I leave you, heated anticipation of that, I want to remind you that Jesus doesn't speak empty words. He doesn't live empty words. Records a calling for the world itself to be transformed. For radical change in how we understand our relationship with God, our Father. It seeks nothing less than a revolution. And it presumes that there is a God who hears every word. See, this prayer in our mouths and hearts is just as dangerous to our lives, our status quo, as it was to the life of Jesus. If you are ready to accept that reality of what you're asking for in this prayer, I invite you to join me as we close with it. If not, if you still have questions, if for whatever reason you don't really meet it, one, I'd like to talk about it. I'd like to talk about it. There's There's a room back there if you want to meet after service and we can talk about it. But I actually would tell you, if you're not ready to accept the realities of that, don't pray it. Don't pray it. Words are powerful. Jesus' words are powerful and true. We need to treat them the same way. So if you wish to join me, join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen.